I have a message that I'm excited to bring you this morning. And I put the finishing touches of it on Tuesday. I was ready to go. And then Wednesday happened. My heart, as I know many of yours is, is really heavy for our nation right now. And I, I'll be the cabillionth person to stand up here and condemn what we all witness at the Capitol building. I can be the cabillionth person both inside the church and outside the church to call for unity. But I believe that a brief condemnation or a call to unity without any real foundation or action is really not all that helpful. So like many of you, my heart is, is stirred between then and now. And I have more to say than I could ever fit into my allotted time up here with you this morning. I spent the entire day Thursday praying and writing and seeking feedback and rewriting a statement to make this morning. I have it. Maybe I'll post it sometime, or if you want it, you can message me and I'll, I'll send it to you. But I pivoted and I decided that as I lead us into a message today focused on God's presence in examining ourselves, that perhaps the best way to spend some of our time together this morning in light of all that is happening is to pray together. So we're going to interrupt um, our expected routine for a few minutes this morning, and we're going to pray. But before we do, I believe we need to recognize where we begin. We are not an agreed people right now. In the world, in the church, I speak with many of you. We all read one another's posts and comments. So when I say that, it's no surprise to any of us. When we go to prayer in this room, we know we are doing so right beside brothers and sisters in Christ who don't necessarily agree about politics and policy, about historical perspectives or the proper direction for our country. I'm even standing in a pulpit right now that I share with dear friends of mine with whom I don't always agree. We love each other. We have a lot of fun together. We laugh a lot. We like to make fun of each other some. But we also don't see everything the same way as one another. But it can't be about winning and losing. It has to be about seeking first the kingdom of God for our personal lives as well as in our church. But here is one thing that we must agree on, and Pastor Jay alluded to this in his prayer earlier. As Christians, our allegiance is to Christ and to Christ alone. So as we go to prayer... If we can truly share this single allegiance to Jesus, I believe we can learn to listen to one another without vilifying one another. I believe we can learn to show respect and honor across the lines of our differences. I believe we can learn to affirm one another's stories when they don't easily intersect with our own. If we can learn these things, I believe we will move well beyond unity in name only and into a family that is healthy and growing. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. So that's what I hope to lead us in these next few minutes to do together this morning. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to offer several verses of Scripture, a very brief prayer, and a question or two. In a few moments after each one, let's each of us ask the Lord to examine us in light of His Word. So let's go to prayer. First passage that I want to read is Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Paul writes this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Lord God, you are our only hope for peace. You made a way to bring peace where lines of hostility were drawn between cultures and races, people, and yourself. How have we and how have I drawn new lines of hostility in place of those that you have broken down? Lord, hear our prayer. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Lord, your word is the source of truth, our source of truth. You have warned us of the temptation to wander off into myths. God, how have we and how have I failed to be ready with the whole of your word? How have we and how have I accumulated voices to suit our own passions? Lord, speak to us. Paul writes to us in Romans 12, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Lord, you tell us that there will be weeping. You have warned us against arrogance and conceit. Where do we... And where do I need to see those weeping around me and enter into their pain? How have we and how have I allowed our arrogance to blind us to the real needs of our brothers and sisters around us, especially those different than ourselves? Lord, speak to us. The Apostle Paul also writes to us in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Lord, you exhort us to be people of crucifixion and demonstrators of the Spirit's power. You know we are tempted to rest content in the wisdom of man. How have we, God, how have I, tried to add to the gospel? How have we, how have I, deluded our witness by placing our faith in the wisdom of men and women? Lord, speak to us. Lord God, you are not after surface unity, but you are after true unity. You call us to wrestle with you as Jacob did, to examine our ways in light of your word. Lord, you say that our suffering produces character and our character produces hope. And Lord, you have brought together for yourself a diverse people, politically, racially, experientially, economically. You have placed us under under one head for your glory and so that we can love and work across the lines of difference that the enemy is using to divide us. Lord, reveal to us anything in our lives and in our church that promotes distortions or divisions. We confess this morning that apart from you working it in us, that that is the direction we will go. So we need your help, God. Help us, God. Restore us to one another and to you. Amen. As we move into the message that I had prepared previously this morning, I thought it would be good if we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. Um, This is the version out of the NLT, so probably not the one that rolls right off of your tongue. But let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer together out loud with this prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen. Lord, as we transition to the message this morning, I pray that your presence would remain with us. We invite you to stay. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we just came out of a season of Advent, a season of waiting and anticipation. That original one, 2,000 years ago, it lasted for 400 years. And right now, we wait together to end this pandemic, together normally, and to hug, and to see one another's faces again. It may not be 400 years when it's all said and done, but it will have been a very long year or two, hopefully not two. But this idea of waiting rooms doesn't exist only at Christmas time. It doesn't exist only in the midst of a global pandemic. We are waiting in so many ways. We are waiting for God to show up in the life of a child. We are waiting for an answered prayer regarding a spouse's addiction or a neighbor's salvation. We are waiting for healing of wounds from our family and unhealthy relationships, or maybe even wounds that we've received at the hands of the church in our life. We are waiting for release from our circumstances, from our fears, and from our anxieties. But as followers of Jesus, church, we wait with hope. We don't wish on a star. We don't throw a coin in a fountain wondering if some cosmic force is going to come through and make it all true for us. No, we exercise faith in the Jesus of the Bible, not the pop culture Jesus. 
Not the Jesus of our own creation, not the soft-focused Jesus, but the one, the one Jesus, the only Jesus who said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. The Jesus that said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We wait with Jesus, who is acquainted with our suffering who weeps with us as we weep, who has faced our temptation, who sees our dysfunction, our confusion, our questions, and our failures, and he dies for us while we were still sinners. So I ask you today, is it okay if church gets a little bit messy for just a few minutes? Is it okay if we're honest about how hard life can be, about how angry and divided we can be, especially right now, even inside the church, in this strained season that we're all living through? Can we be honest about how we don't want to wait for the healing that we so desperately need? I mean, waiting, waiting is about the least exciting thing there ever was, right? We're awash in a culture of hurry and production and results and feeling like we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And I can't change any of that. Not this morning, not ever. But what I am hoping to do is to help answer the question in just the next couple of minutes. What is my hope today, this side of eternity? What is my hope in all the waiting? The gospel truths that I alluded to a few minutes ago, the ones that Jesus said, are our greatest hope into eternity. But the Bible is not silent on how our hope plays out in our lived reality, hour to hour, day to day, season to season. So what we're going to do is drill down for a few minutes on the hope that we have to be freely human today, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God and with others, with all of it. Not just the safe and the sanitized parts of life that seem to fit a little more easily into cultural Christianity. And I believe that one of the best places to see this expressed is in the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to do. Pastor Rich Velotis, in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, he tells us that Psalms reminds us and gives us permission to lay out our questions, our doubts, our fears, our rage, our unfiltered thoughts, praise, celebration, and joy to God. It's as if he knows the way toward divine union in worship is through a willingness to be human. So this morning we're going to see this, hopefully, play out in Psalm 139. I'm going to read us through the whole thing. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or on your phones if you like. But before I read, I just want to give, give my outline this morning to you right up front. It's this, that God's presence is reliable, God's creation is good, and that God's examination is safe. So let's read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, 
and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a powerful passage. I'm not sure I have a whole lot to add, but I'll try to open it up for us this morning. So this is David writing this to us. He's a king of Israel, a foundation piece of the lineage of Jesus and referred to as a man after God's own heart. But he's also an adulterer a liar, a conspirator, a murderer. And even just that super quick biography alone should give us hope that God works in and through the worst of the worst to make the best of the best. And I want to suggest to us this morning that David cannot write what we just read without hope as he waits on the Lord in the midst of his circumstances. Without the knowledge and faith that God is indeed with us, that he is good, trustworthy, kind, and safe. So let's see that, hopefully. First point, God's presence is reliable. We typically, we don't like to live like this. I, I don't always live like this. It's hard. I mean, it, it takes time to practice presence, doesn't it? Which we don't feel like we have any time. It takes mental energy, which we feel like is already spent. It calls to mind some darkness in our lives, which makes us uncomfortable. I mean, I'm right there with you on this. But look at David as he trusts that God has forgiven his sin and remained present with him as the hope in his life. Verses 1 through 3. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now some could read that and say, I'm not so sure if I like that. Discerning my thoughts seeing my path, knowing my ways. I mean, there's a lot in those categories that I would kind of like to hide or forget. Certainly not open up to God. But David here, I believe that he is not overwhelmed by shame or grief. He is expressing gratitude and peace in declaring that in spite of the ugliness of some seasons of his life, that God is still deeply interested in him. He is known completely, and he is still loved, and he is still accepted. We see this again in verses 7 and 8, where he writes, Praise, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now this is exactly the opposite of what author John Lynch calls the Santa Claus is coming to town theology. 
Like, man, I can't go anywhere to get away from you. You're always watching me. You're making a list. You're checking it twice. You're going to find out if I'm naughty or nice. The question that that theology asks us is, will I be accepted or rejected based on my performance? But that's not what David is saying here. If I can paraphrase, I believe he's saying something like, God, on my very best day, on my very worst day, and all of the days in between, your presence is with me. I believe David is expressing gratitude and peace. That God's presence is reliable. So what for us, though? In Christ, forgiven and accepted, we can choose to live with that knowledge and place our hope in just that. Again, on my best day and my worst day, God sees and he stays. God's creation is good. Yes, his big picture creation is good. It's a beautiful morning. We live in a beautiful part of this country. We have mountains and valleys and plants and animals and sky, the sea not too far away. But that's not where David goes here. He cuts, I believe, again, right to the core of God's personal creation as it pertains to him. Verses 13 and 14, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, these are familiar verses to a lot of us. But for some of us, we love them and agree with them. For others, we're thinking, yeah, right. Now, if anybody has reason to think, yeah, right, that's not true for me, Well, then I think David does too. You remember the ugly parts of his story. With hope in the forgiveness of God and the goodness of God, David can declare those words, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But that's not how I felt when I visited that website again or when I took that last drink again or when I feel stuck in my grief or I can't seem to find any medication that helps or when I lashed out at my coworker or when I realized a personal bias or an emerging idol in my life, dot, 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 that list can go on. In those moments, maybe not feeling so warmly and gently knit together or purposefully formed and not so wonderfully made. But the beauty of biblical hope, the beauty of biblical truth is that like it or not, we don't get to decide what is true. My thoughts, my feelings, my behaviors, my circumstances, they don't have the authority to determine my value. No matter how I feel about who God says I am, the truth does not change. Our value comes from what God says is true about us, not even what we believe is true about ourselves. So I say those words and I ask the question, how does that sit with you right now? Do you believe it? Are you living with a hope that says, as you list off your resume of sins and failures or victimization, that you are simultaneously, fearfully, and wonderfully made? Some of you answer that question with absolutely not. So my question then, if that's you, is what do you need to begin a journey toward true right, true and right thinking as we see from David here in this passage? Perhaps it will connect to this last point for you, that God's examination is safe. And when I say safe, I don't mean warm and fuzzy and cuddly and cozy as much as I mean secure, undergirded, planted on a firm foundation. 
As we come to the end of this psalm, we realize that David knows full well that God is very aware of the ins and outs of his thoughts, his circumstances, his sins, his victory. But we also see that, it, that David apparently knows that there is more that can be known. He prays this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, familiar words to many of us, but what a dangerous prayer if we don't have hope that assures us that those first two points are true, that God's presence is reliable, that God's creation is good. If those two statements weren't true, I would be terrified to ask God to search me and to try me and to know my thoughts because I know I have already failed that test. But if those things are true, if he won't leave and I am his good creation, well, then I would want more of him. I would even want to know what I don't already know, both of him and of myself. The more of myself that I know and the more I learn to trust that God is for me, with me, and in love with me, the more of myself I can and will surrender to him. Theologian Andreas Ebert sums this idea up very well. And he writes this, he says, Many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up in their own abysses. But Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. So how do I do this? How do we do this? I'll admit that's a hard question to answer. And I would never be quick to say, oh, just have hope and go home and everything will be fine. We know that's not how it works. This whole idea of examination is not the most fun thing that we can think of, is it? I mean, for many of us, it's a really scary prospect. But I don't intend, and God does not intend to throw you into the quicksand, so to speak, without a strong arm holding you as you step in ready to keep you safe in your exploration. So let's look at a few quick points of application in light of what I've said this morning. God's presence is reliable, God's creation is good, and God's examination is safe. The first two serve as something like bookends, kind of like something on one side and another that keeps those books, kind of that, that chaos of our lives, ordered in the middle because we serve a God that wants to bring order out of chaos. That first one, and there are more than, than these two, but for this morning at least, is prayer informed by God's word. So on one side, on one bookend, we see God's invitation. It's represented in Isaiah 1.18, and I like how Eugene Peterson puts this in his translation called The Message. He says, come, sit down, let's argue this out. And then Isaiah goes on, this is God's message. If your sins are blood red, they'll, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Let us reason together. Sit down. Let's argue this out. This is God's invitation to understand the truth. This is not a blind shove into an unknown. This is God ushering us into a life, into an experience that can be known, into a realm that is real. Without this, ultimately, we have no hope to move into our mess or to experience hope as we wait. 
we're left with nothing but to run right back to ourselves. And if you're being honest like I can be, we're usually the ones who got us into the mess in the first place. We can't move effectively into our past or our decisions or our anxieties or our addictions or the abuse that's been done to us. We can't turn scarlet into pure white. Only God can do that. And for us, it's through Christ. And here's your prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the shortest and favorite and probably most necessary prayers in all of Scripture. It doesn't have to apply only to that moment when we trust Jesus for our eternal salvation, as we often think of it, although that is good and right and true, and we should be praying that. But it is also a daily, even hourly prayer as we wrestle with placing our hope in the whole of what God has to say to us. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So that's on one side. On the other side, the second bookend, a trusted community. Here are instructions on this from Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, to me, this indicates that where we choose our community is important. Where we seek accountability in our routines and our emotions and our thoughts, our practices, our disciplines, should not be taken lightly. It's important that we not explore ourselves in isolation. We need our cord, which needs to include Jesus. We need our cord to be our community of accountability and grace, to help us fend off the enemy who wants to keep his foothold of lies inside our hearts and inside of our minds. Friends, we live in a culture that hides, don't we? Sadly, I I might even argue, you could make the argument at least, and say that that statement might be true more inside the church than outside the church. W. David O. Taylor, that's how you know you're really smart when you have two single initials in, in your name. He's assistant professor of theology and culture at Fuller. He writes this in his recent book, Open and Unafraid. He says, whatever they may be, with our secrets we hide. We hide from others and we hide from ourselves. Ultimately, we hide from God. In our hiding, we choose darkness over light. We embrace death instead of life. We elect to be lonely rather than to be relationally at home with others. And the certain result of all of our hiding is that we become cut off from our source of life, strangers to ourselves, and alienated from creation, which in the end is pathetic and disfiguring, an utterly tragic loss of life. But church, we serve a God who is light, who shines on the dark parts, not to condemn, but to save and to heal and to restore. So my encouragement to us this morning, find those friends who you don't have to hide from, who know your heavenly moments and who know your shield moments and still love you. Maybe they challenge you. Maybe they correct you. They probably will look at you funny sometimes, but they still love you. So God offers us these tools, these bookends, plus more. As we open ourselves to his examination of us, he does so with the promise that his presence is is reliable and that his creation of you and of me is good. Prayer informed by God's word, a trusted community. And in closing, before we head into communion together, I have a rule for you, I guess just just a bonus application. And it's this, be kind to yourself.
You know and I know that when we open ourselves up to this examination, that it will be ugly in a lot of cases. But we are forgiven in Christ. Forgiveness comes on the front end of this process, not sometime later when maybe we get our act together. So be kind to yourself, because God has been kind to you. Amen.